Please go ahead and turn, if you'd like to follow along, to Galatians 5. We'll be reading verses 22 and 23, and we'll also be reading from Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. So we'll start in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. So please listen now to the reading of God's holy and inerrant Word. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing, there is no law. And now to Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together as we prepare to learn from God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have spoken, that You have given us a light unto our path, and we thank You that uh, we can be confident and sure that when You speak, um, You will not leave us the same as when we gathered this morning, but that You will work to change us. And we pray that You would do this by Your mercy and by Your grace, even as You opened Your mouth to speak at the beginning of time and called everything into existence. And as Your Son opened His mouth when He walked upon this earth and He called to the blind and they were made to see, the deaf and they were made to hear, the lame and they were made to walk, and the dead were even called and, and rose from the dead. Father, we pray that we would hear Your voice with that kind of power this morning and that You would change us, that You would heal us, that You would wake us up, and that You would give us eyes to see Jesus. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And the children ages 3 to 1st grade, uh, you're dismissed to Children's Church. So if you make your way to the back of the sanctuary, you'll be taken to your class. Um, We've been in a... Uh, series on Paul's letter uh, to the Galatians for several months now, Uh, but recently we've slowed that series down, and we've slowed that series down so that we can dig a little bit deeper into what Paul called in in his letter to the Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. Um, And here's why we're doing this. It's easy for us at times to confuse some things. And um, one of the things that we often confuse is we confuse being good or uh, being moral or being religious with Christianity. Um, But here's what I want you to think about. We can do lots of good things, and we can be very moral uh, for lots of reasons that have nothing to do with Jesus or the gospel. Um, Fear or pride or self-centeredness or even a desire to have power over others um, can all be powerful motivators to do good um, and to be moral. Uh, But Paul was saying in his letter to the Galatians that Christianity was different. Christianity was unique. It was different uh, from just being simply good or moral. And this is why C.S. Lewis, um, author, theologian, he wrote 
that Christianity isn't merely about making moral improvements or making people nicer. Um, Christianity is about redemption. And as Lewis wrote, um, and as he put it, it's about turning creatures into sons. As he wrote, it's not about producing um, better men and women of the old kind, but producing a new kind of man or woman. And here's what we're saying in this series on the fruit of the Spirit. We're saying that when the Spirit brings the gospel into your heart, when the Spirit makes the gospel real to you and causes you to believe in Jesus, He brings about in you real, authentic, lasting, organic, inside-out transformation. He makes you a new creature, and He brings to you an an entirely new motivation and dynamic for change in your life. Um, And this morning, we looked at love last week, and this morning, we want to see how the gospel can bring us joy, Um, love, joy, peace, and patience, and so on. Listen, we were… We were meant for joy. Uh, you and I, we were made to experience joy in this life. Um, we, we actually need joy. We need it at the very center of our lives. We were made to live out of joy. Um, listen, when I was about 24, 25 years old, I bought my first Labrador Retriever, a chocolate lab, and uh, she died a few years ago, and we recently bought another lab uh, puppy a few months ago, and honestly, I kind of hate her right now, and um, so (laughs) I'm not going to tell you stories about her for a while until I get over that. Uh, She's chewing everything up, But, um, but let me tell you a story about my chocolate lab when I got her. Her name was Peyton, and um, when she was a few months old, I decided to take her out to a pond um, to take her swimming for the very first time. And so I took her out to this pond as a little puppy, and the first day we went, she only got her paws in the water. She got her, her feet wet in the water. But not me. I got all the way in, right? Because I went in, and I was coaxing her and trying to get her to come to me, and she would sit on the bank, and she would get her feet in the water, and she would cry, but she wouldn't come to me. And so, so okay, so I waited a couple days, and we went back again the second time, and we went, and again, I got in the water, right? I'm getting wet. I brought my swimming suit this time. I knew, knew how to be prepared, and I'm coaxing her. I'm calling her to come to me, and she went a little bit further, but she wouldn't let her feet get off of be free from touching the ground, right? So she went up, and the water went up her legs, but not all the way. And so I I started to get a little concerned. Um, I thought I had been sold a defective lab, right? Uh, Because labs are supposed to love water, and this dog wouldn't get in the water with me. So I went a third time, and I went, same kind of thing. I got in, um, and I started to call her to me, and this time she did it. She came all the way in and immediately, just instinctively, swam to me. And it was so exciting. Um, And you know, the hardest thing of that day was getting her out of the water. Um, Because once she experienced it, once she got a taste of it, that's all she wanted to do. It, It was that moment where she discovered 
this is what I was made for, right? I mean, labs, they have these webbed paws, right? They're bred for it. They're meant for it. They're made to be in the water. I mean, every time after that, if she was in the car with me and we drove close to that road where the pond was, she would start crying in the back seat because she wanted to be in the water. She knew she was made for it. And here's what I'm saying to you up front this morning. You are made and you are meant for joy in this life. Um, To experience in your life such deep fulfillment and happiness and wholeness and meaning, life is meant to be lived out of that. But here's the trouble, and it's a real trouble, right? We get tastes of joy in this life, and we get hints of joy in this life. Uh, And sometimes the joy that we experience, it is incredibly deep but it's also incredibly brief. It doesn't seem to last. It seems to keep slipping through our fingers. I mean, how can we get lasting joy in the very center of our lives? And how can we get this real deep joy so that we can live out of it, right? You know, and some of us, as we've experienced these brief encounters with joy, it doesn't last, we've started to grow cynical and hard, and we wonder if it's even possible to experience real deep lasting joy. Um, This morning, we're going to talk about this unique, real, deep, and lasting joy that Paul tells us is the fruit of the gospel, the fruit of the Spirit. And and I'm going to take us to a few passages to talk about it, but I really only have two points for us this morning. First, I want us to talk about the problem with looking for joy in our circumstances. And then second, I want us to talk, talk about finding deep, lasting joy in Jesus, in the Lord. Okay, so the problem with looking for joy in our circumstances. And then second, finding deep, lasting joy in the Lord. First, let's talk about the problem with looking for joy in our circumstances. See, a part of the reason our experience with joy is so brief and so transient and so fleeting and doesn't last is because we're looking for joy in our circumstances. Um, We're thinking, if I could just get this or that, right, then I would be happy. If I could just get the recognition I deserve at work, if I could just get that promotion, if I could just afford to be able to live in that neighborhood, um, if my kids would just behave, if my spouse would just stop whatever, fill in the blank, right? If I could just whatever, then I would feel fulfilled and satisfied and I, I would be whole and I could finally rest and experience joy. And we're setting ourselves up all the time for hardness and bitterness and cynicism when we look for joy in our circumstances. There's this really interesting uh, feast that God commanded His people to celebrate in the Old Testament, and it was called the Feast of Tabernacles. And you can read about it in Leviticus chapter 23. And it was an interesting feast because it was a celebration at the end of harvest every year. Right, so, so here's the design of this feast. God had provided for his, his people a bountiful harvest. He had increased his people's wealth. 
He had made them prosperous. They've grown in material possessions, right, significantly. He had given them these incredible gifts. And now their hard work of bringing in the crops was over. And so it was time to celebrate, and it was time to party. But the celebration of this feast itself was a little odd. Because here's what God told them to do. He told them to go build booths in the wilderness and live in them for seven days. And these booths, they were like little lean-to shacks in the wilderness. So you think about this. Celebration time, right? The harvest is in. We're fat, wealthy, and happy. Our storehouses are full and overflowing. And God said, go celebrate this by forsaking all of your comforts and all of your wealth and goods and go live in the most primitive conditions possible for seven days. And what were they supposed to do for those seven days? Leviticus 23, verse 40, God told them, go out for seven days and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Isn't that strange? (laughs) An odd way to celebrate the harvest. Why would God ask His people to do this and tell His people to do this? It's because He knows how easy it is for us to look for joy in fragile, temporary circumstances of life. How we look for joy in God's gifts, but not in the giver of those gifts. And when we look for joy in circumstances, our joy becomes as fragile and as vulnerable as those circumstances themselves, as fragile as the promotion, as fragile as your bank account is, um, the behavior of your kids, the mood of your spouse, the rain that fell or didn't fall on your crops, which led to a profitable or unprofitable season. Why do we struggle in this life so much with anger and bitterness and fear and anxiety Aren't we usually angry because something we thought we had to have to make us happy was taken from us? And aren't we usually afraid because there's something that we think we have to have that's being threatened, either by the circumstances of life or by someone else? And we're anxious because life we think life is going to be empty, it's going to be hollow if we can't have this or that. And God said, leave your harvest and go into the wilderness and rejoice in me. Because he knows that one of the hardest times and places to find real, deep, lasting joy is in times of prosperity and abundance and plenty. It's in those times that we often fail to see how frail and fragile and vulnerable our joy has become when we look for joy in our circumstances. Now, when some of us hear this, we we start to think immediately, you know, I do that. Um, And so I need to forsake these worldly uh, circumstances, and I need to become more spiritual. Um, I need to go look for spiritual blessings and spiritual gifts. Now, listen, you have to listen to this point closely, but if you do that, you're setting yourself up because you're simply looking for joy in another kind of circumstance, and it's probably even more dangerous to you because on the surface, it seems so moral and good and religious, 
but really it's just the same thing. Briefly, turn with me to Luke chapter 10, because I want to show you something. It's on page 868 if you have a pew Bible. But in Luke chapter 10, while you're turning there, I'm going to give you the setting here. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent out 72 of his disciples on short-term mission trips, okay? Um, And two by two, he sent them out, and they were to go and preach the gospel, and they were given authority to heal the sick. And so they went out. And you know what happened? They were very, very successful. They came back, and they said, it was awesome, Jesus. Best mission trip ever. Changed my life. Luke chapter 10, verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They came back with joy. Check out what we did in your name, right? But look what Jesus said to them. Do you know that experience when you tell your friends uh, some story only to have that story trumped by something bigger and then you feel a little foolish for sharing it? Um, Jesus listened to their excitement and then he said, hmm, this is verse 18. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, Um, which is kind of like he's saying, oh, really? I remember a time, yeah, let me, let me go back. Yes, I remember a time when before there was the creation of the world that I was there and I saw Satan break bad. Um, that's what he's saying here. He's saying, slow down and remember who you're talking to, right? I'm God in the flesh. I have authority over everything that exists. And so after this sharp little rebuke, Jesus told them that he was going to give them authority Wait for it, over all the power of the enemy, and that's verse 19. Wow, that's amazing. That's exciting, right? But you keep reading, and the very next thing Jesus said was this, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, listen to me. I, I hope, I hope, that you experience many spiritual successes and that you experience a lot of victory in your life over sin and brokenness. But if you've been a Christian for more than a day, you know that the Christian life isn't all victories. There are a ton of defeats and a thousand lapses back into immaturity. And there are lots of, there's lots of sin and brokenness that, that is still clinging even to your best, very best moments in life. Look, you've got to be careful of saying, I'll stop looking for joy in worldly circumstances and start looking for it by being good and being moral and being more religious in my life. Because listen, your joy is going to be just as fragile as your consistency. Your joy will be just as vulnerable as your character. Your joy will be just as fleeting as your commitment. And at first, it seems like Jesus was throwing cold water on their excitement for doing very good things for his kingdom and ministering to people. But what he was saying was this, don't misplace your joy. There is something far more solid for you to place your joy in. Rejoice in what is unshakable what is untouchable. Your names are written in heaven. Your names are written in the book of life. Let me leave you with one thought 
before we get to our second point. Um, Cynthia Heimel uh, was a writer who knew a lot of struggling actors and actresses in New York. And, uh, and then she watched many of them succeed. Um, and they made it to the top of their profession. And she wrote about that. And this is what she wrote. She wrote, I pity celebrities. No, I do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. You see, they wanted fame. They worked and they pushed. The morning after, each one of them became famous, however, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness happened, and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. You know, we don't often say these things out loud, but we know that there are things in our lives that we think, if I could just have that, if I could just arrive there, if I could just change this, if I could just fix that, then I would be happy, and everything would be okay, and my life would be bearable, and I would be fulfilled, and I would be happy if I got that. And I want you to think about this as we leave this point. Quite often, God's most gracious gift to you in this life is in simply not giving you what you think you need to be happy. Because we're looking at whatever it is, and we're thinking, this is the game changer. This will change everything. But listen to this lady. The morning after they got what they thought they wanted, they wanted to take an overdose. Sometimes God's grace in our lives is saying no to our wants and desires because He knows how quickly we will suck that into the very center of our lives, how we'll settle for a fragile, vulnerable, fleeting joy in our circumstances when we were meant for so much more, when we were meant for real, deep, and lasting joy. So we're going to end this morning by talking about this so much more that I just mentioned. So second and last, finding deep and lasting joy in the Lord. It's been a little while since Steve read these verses for us earlier, but in Philippians 4.4, that's where we saw Paul command these people to rejoice in the Lord always. Here's what I want to say to you in this point. If the object of your joy is the unchanging, unmovable, unshakable forever God, then so will be your joy. When your joy, your delight is in Him, your joy becomes untouchable and unshakable by the circumstances of life, whether those circumstances are good or bad. Now, think through this verse from Philippians with me just for a moment. Paul bursts into this command in verse 4 where he said, Rejoice in the Lord. He said, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Now, here's the question. The book of Philippians is a letter that Paul wrote to the Christians living in Philippi. And so, in the middle of writing his letter, he just kind of bursts into this command to these people. What was it that triggered Paul to burst into that command. Here's what was happening in the verses just before. Paul was giving relational advice to two women in Philippi who couldn't get along with each other. Their names were Euodia and Syntyche. 
And this is the verse that comes right before our verse. He wrote, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Look, we just heard a phrase like that when Jesus was speaking to his disciples and telling them that their names are written in heaven. See, here's what I think is going on. I think Paul had in mind Jesus' conversation with his disciples as he was giving relationship advice to these women. Because it's when our joy is anchored in God's amazing grace that we are free relationally to give ground and not be bitter, right? And to forgive and to defer to one another. Paul says our names are in the book of life. We didn't get in by our zip code. We didn't get in by how well-behaved our children were or how successful our career was or how financially secure we were or by how many spiritual successes we experienced or by being right in some argument, like maybe Yodi and Syntyche were arguing, right? The only way any of us got in, Paul was saying, was by grace. We are in because Jesus paid for our sins and because he is our righteousness, Now listen, when you are free from trying to earn God's smile and free from the fear that you could ever lose God's smile, that's when you become free in everything else in life. That's when you're free to give ground. That's when you're free to defer to others. That's when you're free to forgive. When you get this joy that you are loved completely and entirely by Jesus. And you are loved by grace and grace alone. And that's at the center of your life. You become an unshakable person. You become untouchable. And it's also when you find the freedom to enjoy God just for who He is. And not simply for the gifts He can give. Listen, it's when we're anchored in this grace that we find that this joy that is so real and so deep and so lasting that it grows in the most unlikely conditions. Because James wrote, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. And Paul wrote to the Romans and said that we rejoice in our sufferings. And Peter wrote that we are to rejoice, that we participate in the sufferings, in in the sufferings of Christ. All the biblical writers are writing about joy that is independent, and it cannot be touched by the circumstances of life, whether those circumstances are good or bad. Listen, when we try to get joy in our circumstances, we try to control the circumstances around us and make them favorable to us. But the Bible says if your joy is in the Lord, it's not only maintained in the midst of suffering, but it actually grows in the midst of unfavorable circumstances in your life. Trials can affect your job, they can, your family can be affected by trials, right? Your bank account, and on and on we could go. But if your joy is in the Lord, you can remain unshaken in your joy and even grow in your joy in these kinds of circumstances. I don't usually bounce between as many passages as we've done this morning, but I've got one more story in the Bible that I want to mention to you before we close. And it's in John chapter 2. And it's the story of Jesus turning water into wine. Um, And John tells us that that was Jesus' first miracle. 
He actually calls it Jesus' first sign. And Jesus and his mother, if you remember this story, they were at a wedding party in Cana of Galilee. And, um, and I've always loved that picture of this is Jesus' first kind of coming out. I'm going to do miracles. I'm the Son of God. And he's at a party. Because you would have loved to invite Jesus to your party. You would have loved to have him there. He was the life, and he's always being invited to parties, always being invited over to people's houses for parties. Anyway, that's kind of an aside. But um, they were at this party, and they ran out of wine at this party. And wedding feasts in this culture, they could last days. They could last up to a week, right? And to run out of something like wine would have been more than a little embarrassing uh, for the host of the party. In fact, it could have been such an insult that the entire wedding would be called off completely. So many of you probably remember this story where Jesus steps in and he saves the day. Um, he told these servants to go and fill these huge jars that were used for ceremonial washing. He told them to fill them with water, and then he miraculously changed that water into wine. But, but not just any wine, the best wine, right? The master of the banquet was so amazed, right? You might remember because he was basically saying, normally the cheap stuff comes out after everybody's been drinking for a while and they can't really tell if it's good or bad wine, right? This was the good stuff. This was the best wine. Now, let me tell you why wine was such an important piece of the wedding celebration in this culture. There's this old rabbinical saying from this time period that went like this. The wine is the joy of the wedding. I mean, it was symbolic, right? And I want you to catch what Jesus' statement, what statement was being made when Jesus performed this miracle. He was saying, I came down from heaven to bring you joy. I came to restore joy to you fully. I came to give you real, deep, lasting joy, the best joy possible. John finished his story of Jesus changing the water into wine by saying that this was the first of Jesus' signs. What is a sign? A sign points to something. And this sign was pointing to the cross, that Jesus came to purchase for you the cup of joy and the only way for him to give you the cup of joy was for him to drink the cup of wrath in your place and mine. And the good news of the gospel is that he did in order that you and I could find deep, lasting joy in him and in his love for us. Now, let me end very quickly with three brief points of application for you. And the first is this. To experience the joy Jesus came to purchase for you and for it to move into the center of your life, you have to fix your eyes on Jesus. The author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, wrote this, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. You have to fix your eyes on Jesus and not only see what he did, his death on the cross. You have to fix your eyes on Jesus and see why he did what he did. It was for the joy set before him. And what was the joy set before the author of all creation?
the one who is in authority over all things, the joy that was set before him was you. And seeing that, he endured the cross and he scorned its shame and he came to live and die for you in order that he could have you forever. You need to see that. You need to trust that. If you want a joy that is untouchable, you have to know how much he loves you. Second thing, to experience the joy that Jesus came to purchase you for you and for it to move into the center of your life, you have to realize your deep need for others. Look, it's in life-on-life community that we learn how to rejoice. Paul was writing to two women who couldn't get along, and immediately he shifted to this command about rejoicing. And it was a command not just to the women, but to everyone who was reading the letter. Because none of us can do this alone. As much as we were meant for joy in this life, we were also meant for relationships. We were meant for community. We all need friends who will stand side by side with us and help us to refix our eyes on Jesus. And we need to stand by others and remind them of the beauty of the gospel, right? Because we tend to forget it. We tend to forget it each week. And you have to realize your need for others to help point you back to Jesus and to the joy we have in Him. Third and last, to experience this joy, you also have to pay attention to the signs. And here's what I mean. C.S. Lewis, we started out with a quote from him. C.S. Lewis wrote about how before he became a Christian, he would read and read great books And he would listen to great music, and he would get as much of it as he possibly could, and he would just become obsessive about it. And he would binge on books and music and those kind of things. And when he became a Christian, he wrote that he realized what he was doing. He said he was looking for joy, but he mistakenly thought that the joy was in the books and in the music. And he wrote that he finally realized that it was joy that was coming from God through the books, through the music, through the food, through the friendships, through the whatever, right? The wine at the wedding feast, it was meant to be enjoyed. It was created to be enjoyed, and the promotion at your job is meant to be enjoyed. And you're meant to enjoy your kids and your spouse and to enjoy your year-end bonus, but don't make the mistake of stopping there and looking for joy in those circumstances. You have to realize that they are signs that ultimate, untouchable, uncorruptible, unfading joy is not found in these things, but found in the one who is the author of these things and the giver of these gifts. Very often, God gives us these gifts, and we need to pay attention to the signs because he's pointing you to his ultimate gift, his own son given for you, that you would have life in him, that you would know you are loved by him, and that he is pleased with you no matter the circumstances you are facing in life. This is how to find real, deep, and lasting joy by coming to Jesus and abiding in him. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for... Your word, which convicts us of sin, but also convicts us of the righteousness that is ours in Jesus, because he was the one who came and lived and died and rose from the dead in our place. He was the one who came 
and drank the cup of wrath in order that we might drink the cup of joy. Father, we pray that you would guard our hearts, that you would protect us, that we would not look for joy in our circumstances, but that we would look for joy in you, that we would find our satisfaction, our fulfillment, and our wholeness in your Son, Jesus, who was given for us. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.